Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. It's an honor for me to be standing here, uh, filling in the pulpit as Pastor Dan's on vacation, getting some much-needed rest and time with his family. And I'm thankful for the privilege to do something that I don't normally do. So bear with me. Thank you. Thank you. And um, we're going to look to God's word. But before we do that, I'm going to open us uh, with a word of prayer. So would you pray with me? Our Father, as we come to your word, I am I am humbled at the fact that I am a broken vessel, that I go weak and needy to this task of preaching today. And I'm so thankful that Despite me and my weaknesses, my brokenness, and the stuff that gets in the way, Lord, that you will proclaim your word today to us. I am so thankful that you have spoken to us. We don't deserve to be spoken to, much less spoken to in a way that we can understand. And you, the God of the universe, the God that is over all, the God that has created all, the God that is holy and, and just and good and eternal and unchangeable and infinite and powerful, that you have sought to Reveal yourself to make yourself known to us. Using our language, speaking to us, and by your Spirit helping us to understand. And so, despite my inadequacies, Lord, I pray and plead with you this morning to speak to your people, to convict us. to challenge us, to guide us into the truth so that we can remember who we are, so that we can be encouraged, so that we can be convicted about how we need to change our lives. And ultimately, so that we can see the beauty of the gospel and glorify Christ. commit our time to you and we commit this preaching to you for the sake of your kingdom and 
the name of Christ. Amen. I'm going to begin reading the, uh, the, the passage here. We're going to start in verse 30 of Romans 9. Verse 30 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for them is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. So I have three questions this morning as, as we begin. And here they are Have you ever worried about the future? I have. Have you ever complained about the present? Guilty. Have you ever distressed or had regret over the past? Yeah, me too. Over 10 years ago, I co-pastored a church plant with, with another pastor, and we also were uh, business partners, and we had a, a, a very small, not very successful business where we fixed up houses. That was our tent making work. And we once owned this house that we were fixing up to sell. And uh, because we were cheap and stubborn, we tried to do all the work ourselves, even if it was things we had no idea what we were doing. We figured, ah, how bad can it be, right? So we bought this house, and it was the third house that we, uh, we had bought. And we're in uh, Charlotte, and it's 2006. Just a little market context for anyone who maybe was, uh, you know, back then thinking about those things. We had to significantly change the outside of this house. I mean, we had to tear all the siding off 
and uh, put new siding on, and someone thought it would be a good idea to install some stone fascia on the front of the house, which included setting up 27 feet of scaffolding. So who got voted to do that job? Yep, me. So here's the picture. There's the scaffolding. I'm not on it because I fell off. I'm just kidding. I, I took the picture. I, I climbed down. So that part with the arched window is the part that we decided to do some stone stuff. So, so here I am. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never put stone on the front of a house before. And I would find myself driving to this house uh, in the morning, and I would pass all these new construction, uh, you know, developments going up. And I saw some contractors one day putting stone on the front of the house. So what did you know what I did? I really slowly in my truck drove by and just watched. Oh, the next day, same thing. Okay, I see what they're doing. I think I got this figured out. So I put the stone up. Now, these guys probably could have done this thing in a week. It took me three weeks initially, three weeks. And then I learned that I forgot to do a step. I forgot to put some paper behind the stone that I guess keeps it waterproof, you know. And rather than tear the whole thing down, I said, I just, I'll get my caulk gun and I'll just caulk the thing. So I put a lot of caulk into, <laughs> into the stone on this house because that was the fix. So here's the story with this house, okay? I'm worrying about this stonework. It's what was supposed to take three months to fix, took six months to fix. And then we put the house on the market in February of 2007. And the rest of the country, the, the market crashed in 2008. And Charlotte, it crashed in 2007. There was so much inventory that brand new houses were selling for 75 cents on the dollar. We couldn't sell this thing for the life of us. We sat on this. We were making interest-only payments for 24 months before it sold. Now, ask me what kind of Christian I was during that time. I was a wreck. I was an anxious, worried wreck. I was distressed over the house. I thought the stone, I said, oh, man, we're never going to sell this thing. It's going to leak. There's going to be water everywhere. I was worried about it. I complained about the fact that we bought this house. I had migraines. Just ask my wife how much fun I was to be around in those 18 months while we were waiting for it to sell. See, to an outside observer, here's the point I want to make. To someone looking in at me with all that worry, they really saw what was going on in me. I, I, I hit it pretty well. Someone saw what was going on inside of me. They probably would have concluded that I didn't have any faith in God at all. I didn't have faith in His timing. I didn't have faith in His provision. I didn't have faith in His grace. Why? Why? What was going on? If everything that we just sang, if everything that we just heard, if everything that we all just celebrated in here, these truths about who God is, what He's done for us in Christ, His love for us in Christ, the grace that He's poured out on us, His endless love, then what reason in the world do we have to worry about the future, to complain about the present, or to distress over the past? We have none. And yet I am guilty as charged, chief, chief of sinners in this area I think it's for this reason. I think we suffer from eternal amnesia. We forget the realities of eternity. 
And that leads us to practical atheism. Where we live in the here and now, in the moment by moment, here and now, as if God doesn't exist. I think for those who grow up in a Christian home, it's even a little bit worse, to be honest. The struggle is a little worse. So when you worry about the future, when you complain about the present, when you just stress over the past, you're acting like you don't believe God exists. You're suffering from eternal amnesia. You're being a practical atheist. And I think this happens because we have started listening to lies. We've started listening to lies about who God is, about the meaning of life, about how the world works, about our relationship to God. We listen to lies about the Word of God. And when we believe these lies, we turn away from the way of grace. We turn away from the way of faith. And rather, we turn towards what one scholar says, we turn towards death. He says it like this, when you turn away from the way of faith, you embrace death. How many of us here want to embrace death? A death with no prospect of life. A death with no hope for salvation. A death that leads to utter and total darkness and damnation. Not me. I don't want to embrace that. As someone who's buried a child, I don't want to embrace death at all. And yet, when we live like practical atheists, when we live like God doesn't exist, That's exactly what we're doing. So you might be saying, what what does this have to do with Romans? What does it have to do with Romans 9 and 10? Everything. I think it has everything to do with it. You see, we come into our our passage today. We've been in Romans 9. Uh, We're going to be in Romans 9 and 10 today, and we're going to be in Romans 11 in, in a few weeks. And the question that Paul's addressing in these chapters is this. Why do so few of the Jews believe in the gospel when historically God chose the nation of Israel? How does this work? How come so few Jews can believe the good news about Jesus? And so what Romans 9 does from a perspective of God's sovereignty, of of God who is the one who is at work, uh, Romans 10 does from the human perspective. Okay, Romans 9 answers the question that, that... Who are the true people of God? That is, they are those who trust in God's promise to save through Christ. And that God's choice is, uh, of who he saves is just that. It's his choice. That he is sovereign and by his grace, he is the one who is uh, watching over. He is the one who in his purposes of sovereignty and, and, and election, he is the one who has decided who he will have mercy on and who he won't have mercy. And this is hard for us. And his choice isn't dependent on our good deeds. It's not dependent on our doing things. It's not dependent on our desires. It's not dependent on on what we do or don't do. It's entirely dependent upon his sovereign grace, which is rooted in his character to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. And at the same time, the same time, from a human perspective, we are 100% responsible for the choices that we make. And Romans 10 shows us how that works. So from a human perspective, 
Why do the Jews not believe? And he uses the term, just, just kind of a note here, he, when he says Israel, you know, in verse 30, uh, excuse me, where is that? Verse 31, that, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, he's referring to the, the Jews who don't believe, the unbelievers. So we could, we could just as well, where it says Gentiles here, say the believers, and where it says Jews or Israel, we could say the unbelievers. He's speaking to those who are ethnically Jewish who don't believe. They're struggling to believe. And he's saying they are living, not pursuing a way by faith, but they're pursuing a different way. And so Paul suggests two ways to pursue righteousness, but he shows that there's a problem with one of the ways. And throughout this text, what he does is he confronts three lies that lead us to our practical atheism, okay? So hopefully if everything comes together, that's kind of what will happen. We're going to see two ways to pursue righteousness, a problem with one of the ways, and the lies that Paul contradicts that he confronts. So we start in verse 30, and he asks this question, what are we going to say then? You see, he's just spoken in chapter 9 about how uh, God has mercy on whom he has mercy. He's chosen to include those who are not ethnically Jewish into his sovereign plan. He also has chosen to save a remnant of the people of Israel. And so you may be thinking, okay, well, how does this work? Why, why is there unbelief among, among some of the Jews? And he says, what are we going to say then? He says, the Gentiles, verse 30, who did, not, uh, who did not pursue righteousness, they weren't looking for it. They weren't going out looking how to be received and accepted by God. They are what we might call the irreligious, the, the, the pagan, so to speak, it, before they came to faith. They attained it, he says. They attained it, a righteousness that is by faith. So that's the one way. That's the way of faith. The other way is the way that what he calls Israel, the Jews, the ethnic Jews, the ones who are not believing, they're stuck in unbelief. They have pursued, verse 31, a law that would lead to righteousness. And here's the problem. They did not succeed in reaching that law. They didn't succeed. We have contrasted here these these two ways. The way of faith and the way of performance. And the Jews believe that the way of performance is the way to be accepted by God. They believe they had to earn God's favor, that they needed to win salvation based on their works. They believe they needed to put themselves in a right position before God by their own power, by their own ability to do good things. So here's the, the contrast, and, and, and I'm going to read from a commentator because I think he does a really good job of putting it into perspective for us. He says, Here, here's the contrast summarized of these two ways. The Jew sought to put God in his debt. The Gentile was content to be in God's debt. The Jew believed he could win salvation by doing things for God. The Gentile was lost in amazement at what God had done for him. The Jew sought to find, uh, find the way to God by works. The Gentile came by way of trust. So the question that we want to ask ourselves is this. Why, why is it that the, what's so easy for the, the Gentile believer to accept about the good news of the gospel, why is it so hard for, for, the, for the Jewish person to believe? Why can't they accept it? 
Paul says that the problem is this in verse 32. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. You know Paul's really driving something home when he pulls out the big guns, you know, the Old Testament guns. We're going to go to the Old Testament here, guys. And he says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So you might be going, okay, so the Jews aren't believing because they're tripping over some stone? What does that mean? Now, for the sake of time, I would love to get into Isaiah and spend, you know, a lot of time looking at Isaiah because the context is really helpful. And I'm going to try to summarize it all for us, okay, of what's happening in Isaiah, why Paul chooses, he chooses two passages from Isaiah, Isaiah 8.14, and he chooses Isaiah 28.16 to make this point about this stumbling block. The reason we want to focus on this for just a minute is it helps us see what's going on in the mind of the Jew, that they're having a hard time believing and accepting what may seem like a simple thing to accept. Isaiah 8, and and I'm going to put these up here, these passages. Here's Isaiah 8, and and, and I want to focus on a verse. This is the context around one of the the verses, 8.14, which talks about the stone of offense. Notice what, what, what is said here. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. He's telling Isaiah, don't walk in the way that the unbelievers, the the Jewish leaders, the the leaders of Jerusalem are walking. Don't walk like them because what they're walking like is like this. They're saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. See, what's happening, the, the, the people are walking, the leaders of the Jews and they're leading the Jewish people, they're walking in a way that they've, they're entrapped and enslaved by fear of all that's going on around them. They have lost sight of a key truth that God over and over again in the Old Testament makes clear. That I am your God and you will be my people. Over and over again, that's the message we hear. And what are they doing? They're not walking in that way. Instead, they're walking, they're, they're, they're calling things conspiracy. They're thinking there's lies going on. They're, they're, they're thinking that, that, oh man, they're going to come get us. We're in dread. We're, ah. They're scared. They're worried. And so he says, if we go to the next slide, in verse 14, he says, And he, the Lord of hosts, will for some be a sanctuary, and to others he will be a stone of offense. And what will happen? And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So they're living in fear. They're worried. They're, they're not remembering who they are, they're not remembering who God is, okay? Isaiah 28, here's what he says in Isaiah 28, the context of this. He's now speaking and he says, therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. So now it's not only that we're in fear and we're in dread and we're, there's conspiracies, now they're actually scoffing at the idea that God saves. This word scoffer is interesting. Uh, one a scholar who all he did was write on the book of Isaiah, this is what he said to define this word scoffer, which is speaking about the, the, the unbelief of the people at the time who were not remembering who God is and what he done. This is what he says. The word scoffer expresses an advanced stage of practical atheism. An atheism that says the world has to be run by human common sense. What would God have to do with that? 
And the scholar goes on and says, to this Isaiah replies, that to turn from the way of faith is to embrace death. And see, what happens is, because they are scoffing, Isaiah says, you're making a covenant with death. You have made the the last line there, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. They're not remembering the truth. They're not trusting in what they've heard over and over again since they were children, that God is the God who saves his people. They've listened to a lie. And here's the lie that they've listened to. They've believed a lie about God that says the good news of salvation, the good news of salvation by faith, it's just not that simple. That's the lie that they've listened to. The the gospel's not that simple. It can't be that simple. Anybody working on their taxes? Yeah, somebody? I'm working on my taxes. Yeah, I see see some slow heads like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm working on my taxes. This past week, it's basically all I was doing uh, in, in my spare time, was working on my taxes. So since last summer, I believed, because of some things last year and, and the ways things worked out and some choices and so forth, that I was going to have this humongous tax liability, okay, like, like really, really big. And I've been sort of guarding some money, because I've, and I've been worried about this, to be quite honest. I, here I am, the practical atheist, right? Worried, sick about this. So as soon as I was able, I got all my stuff to my accountant so that I could know as soon as possible how bad it was going to be so that I could see if I needed to go like take a loan out on my car or something like that, right? So Thursday, he emails me and he tells me how much I owe. I remember I'm in the kitchen and I get it, I think, and I open this email up and I read it and I say, and my wife Tara, she's there, and I say, it's only 20% of what I thought we were going to owe. Only 20%. That's, that's, that's significant. Now here's the rub. I didn't believe him. So I had 70 pages of documents for my tax, uh, my accountant, and I went through every single line and asked him questions because I did not believe that he was right. I thought he did something wrong. He didn't, he did, something's not right here. Maybe, maybe he's lying to me. Maybe he actually is trying to take deductions that I can't take deductions for. Maybe he's doing, I just, I don't believe him. So I email him back. He emails me back. Oh, no, this is, here it is. Blah, blah, blah. Back and forth, back and forth. I cannot for the life of me. This is, and it went on for the next couple days. He was really gracious. He, late into one evening, he's going back and forth with me. Now, here's, here's the funny thing about this. My wife, when she hears this news, my wife, Tara, standing right there, I'm going, no way, not true. She just starts doing a happy dance. Woohoo! We don't owe as much. I think she's planning our next beach trip or something, you know. Woohoo! We got, okay, here we go. Why is it so easy for her to accept this? And it was so difficult for me to accept this. Here's the reason she had no reason not to trust the accountant, she had no reason to think that the expert doesn't know what he's doing. She had every reason to believe he's the expert. You gave him all the stuff. You got him all the documents. He asked you more questions. You got him what he needed. Now let him do his work. She trusted in the expert on this matter. 
And why was it difficult for me to accept? Because I believed my own truth, my own mindset, the system that I had created in my mind was actually better than his expert opinion. I couldn't apply simple trust to the situation at all. And to be honest, I'm still struggling a little bit. My own weak heart. This is what's going on here, folks. This is what's happening to, to, the, to the Jews, to the, to the unbelieving Jews. They've grown up thinking and, and believing in this system. You know, uh, uh, this system, you go down into verses 10, uh, excuse me, chapter 10 and, and verses uh, uh, 3. You know, they are ignorant. They sought to establish their own way. They had this system in mind where they thought, I have to earn and win God's salvation. And when presented with the truth, the simple truth that our salvation the gospel says is through Christ. You don't have to do the hard work. You don't have to do this. this you, you can't do it. And you know what? It's okay because Jesus has done it for you. And instead of simply trusting in the expert God himself, they believed a lie that said it's just not that simple. It, doesn't, it, it can't be that simple. They were living like practical atheists. They were living like God didn't exist. They were not willing to accept the simplicity, the beautiful simplicity of the gospel. The gospel that, that very simply put, says that Christ became sin so that in Him we might become righteousness. That through what He did and His sacrifice, we might become holy. And through what He did and his, the punishment He took, our sin may not be counted against us. See, they were living with this idea, this religious scheme that they, they thought, well, this doesn't make sense. It can't be that simple. I can't just believe this. And yet that's exactly what Paul is asking them to do. And friends, don't believe the lie that says the gospel is not that simple. It is. Now, don't get me wrong. It was not simple to accomplish. And don't get me wrong. It is not a simple life where, hey, I believe everything's good. No, it's, it's hard. It turns your entire life around. But living in the way of grace is trusting and treasuring the simplicity of the gospel. And Paul goes on to confront another lie, and he starts kind of unpacking the, their way of performance. He starts trying to get in a little bit, digging in a little bit at what's going on here. What, what's happening? And then what, what, what is this second lie that they are believing? You see, his desire, he says in 10.1, is that, that, that he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. And he says, verse 2, chapter 10, verse 2, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. Here's the great irony. I think this, this, this can hit close to home. They believed they were doing all this stuff for God. 
They believed they were doing all this stuff for God. And Paul says they were zealous, faithfully zealous. I think sometimes we give, we give the Jews a bad rap, and I think we need to be careful about that. We sort of say, how can they live like that? How can they not see what's, what, you know, how, can, how come they can't accept this? How come they just keep doing all this work, 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 work kind of stuff? The reality isn't that they didn't love God. They loved God. They loved his law. They just thought they had to do and keep his law in order to be loved by God. And that was where their problem was. I think we can struggle with the same thing at times. We struggle with it when we set up our own system. And it's a second lie that I think they believe. And it's this lie that says this, that God's word is not sufficient. It's the second lie, that God's word is not sufficient. And see, Paul says in verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they have this zeal. They, 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 they keep these rules. They've imposed these, these, uh, uh, these burdens onto the word of God because they think, well, this is what I have to do to stay in God's good grace, to be accepted by him. I've got to do these things. And they teach them to their kids, and they teach them to their kids' kids. And in all of, the, all of this, they have forgotten something. They have overlooked something. That in God's word, if you look just in the word itself, this is not the same message that you find. I, I recently spent uh, a, 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 an entire day trying to figure out a video camera. If you, there's a camera back there, and we're, we started video recording some of the, the weeks for various reasons, not for public uh, distribution at all, but I, I was kind of tasked with figure this thing out, okay? Here I am again, having, I have no idea what I'm doing here. So I am looking for batteries, I'm looking for charge. We have boxes of stuff all over the place. There's boxes over here, there's boxes back there, and I'm trying to gather all this stuff together and figure out, okay, how do we do this thing? Do I have the right charger? Do I have the right batteries? I don't know. So I'm spending an entire day like searching this church high and low for things. I find this box, I lay all this stuff out in front of me, and then I'm going, I have no idea what to do this. So I just start plugging stuff in, right? Oh, does it work? Does it work? Does it work? So over the course of a week, I'm, I'm going, you know, kind of a little here, a little there, working on this. And it finally dawns on me. Oh, why don't I just look at the user's manual? Why don't I just see what it says? I bet it'll tell me exactly which charger is the right charger for this. Because there's like four cameras, so I don't know which charger. Sure enough, pull up the user's manual, and in like three minutes, I had it all figured out. Three minutes by just looking to see what the manual said. I had believed a lie that, you know, I could figure this out on my own. I don't need that. I think the Jews that are unbelieving, the unbelieving religious person, you could even say, is doing the same thing. Not trusting that God's word is sufficient to tell us all we need to know about salvation. So we create a system. We create a way of performance. We listen to a lie that says it's not that simple. It's just not. This isn't sufficient. I've got to figure out something else. Paul confronts this deception in verse 4. He says, actually... Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not you and your law keeping, not you and doing all this great religious stuff. That's not the end of the law. That's not the goal. Actually, Christ is. If you study the scriptures, Paul's saying, if you study the Old Testament, you go back through and study it, all of it is pointing you to Christ. It's, there's, 
nothing in the Old Testament that's going to point you to say that you need to keep the law in order to be accepted by God. And he points it out with a verse that on the surface actually seems like that's what it's saying. And it's in verse 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. So meaning that to be accepted by God through the law, what do you have to do? It says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So wait, you're telling me that if I do the commandments, I can live by them? Sure. Can you do the commandments? No. Well, I, I think I've got more in my, my, my credit account, than, than, you know, credited in my account than debited, so isn't that good? No. Remember the verse that says, even if you, if you fall at one slight part of the law, you've broken the whole thing in James. And see what the unbelieving religious folks have missed is that they are not the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. He is the goal. He is the one who completes the law, who fulfills the law, who makes the law in our need to keep the law to be accepted by God. He makes it obsolete. He says, come to me. I'm your righteousness. So the unbelieving Jews, the the unbelieving religious have have listened to a lie that says the gospel is not that simple. They've listened to a lie that that says uh, that that God's word is not sufficient. And the reason that they have set up their system is because they've listened to a third lie which fills into this and the lie simply says you have to do the impossible to succeed. You have to do the impossible to succeed. I think sometimes we, we, we sort of think that that's sort of like life. Like, well, I got to do the impossible to make it. Like there's this dream out there, right? That, this dream that we're, we're aiming for. And in order to get to that dream, it, it's going to be really hard. You got to work really hard. It might even be impossible. And you might make it to that dream. This is a a lie, friends. And Paul confronts this lie. This lie that says you have to do the impossible to succeed. You see, he says as opposed to the way of performance, there's a different way. It's the way of faith. See, the way of performance says I got to do all this stuff and I've got to figure out a way to to put myself into good standing with God. And he says that's not going to work. Because he says there's a different way, the way of faith. And, and, and he does this kind of in an, an allegory kind of way. He says, but the righteousness based on faith, this is verse 6. I kind of, in my mind, I'm seeing like the, the word faith in a cartoon. And there's like a little bubble coming out of it. You know, one of those like talking bubbles. You know what I mean? You ever, anyone read comics? Faith says, and here's what faith says. Do not say in your heart. So this is faith speaking right now. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. So, so faith is saying, first off, look, don't say you got to like go into heaven. Remember those guys in, that tried to build that tower? Did it work out for them? Nope. You can't do it. You can't go into heaven and try to reach God. It's not going to work. Faith says, don't say that. Faith also says, uh, don't say who will descend into the abyss. 
Don't say you've got to go down into the depths of the earth and, and go down and, and gruel down and, you know, battle with death and, and argh, I've got to take it on. No, he says, don't say that. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And what does faith say? So here's, that's the first one. Faith says, don't say, go, try to go into heaven. Don't say, got to go down in the abyss. What does faith say? Here's the second little, you know, if there's two, whatever, boxes. Faith says, the word is near you. That is the word of faith. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. What faith says is that the impossible has already been done. My son has a sword. It's a plastic sword. And he can't say his S, so he calls it his Tord. My three-year-old son, he said, and every night, every night before bed, every night before bed, he lays down, you get him tucked in, he's got it, I mean, he's like ready to go, and without fail, he says, where's my Tord? And of course, I'm going, oh, the search for the sword. And we can never find this thing. I mean, we search everywhere for this thing. And the other night, I'm looking everywhere. I mean, I'm in the basement because I'm like, I don't want him to get out of the bed because you know what's going to happen if the three-year-old gets out of the bed after he's already in his jammies, he's already tucked in, what's he going to do? He's going to go crazy. So, sorry, kid, you stay there. I'll look for the sword. So, here I am. I'm going in the basement. I'm in, I'm in the garage. I'm in the car. I'm out in, in the sunroom. I'm out in the backyard looking for the sword. And I go back into his room and say, I have no idea where the sword is. It's on the top of his bed right there. Not a great illustration for the impossible being done, but there it is. I'm looking all over the place for this. I'm searching high and low for this sword, and it's right in front of me. It's right in front of me. And friends, the impossible has been done in Christ. The success of Christ is your success if you rest on Him by faith. And He says that. He says, because... The way of faith says in verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth outwardly proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, you say, He is Lord over all. He is my Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. No questions asked. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He's saying you don't have to strive unceasingly for good things. You don't have to distress over the past anymore. You don't have to worry about the future. Christ has done the impossible. He has come down out of heaven. He has crossed the great abyss. He has gone down into the grave and come up out of the grave standing victoriously. And he says, if you believe in me and trust in me and order your life and change your life around me, you will be saved from God's wrath and condemnation. In, in, a, in a sentence, he's saying, I have done the impossible so that you can rest and live in me. That's the way of grace. The way of grace. And this way, as we finish, is the way for everyone. Now, notice I didn't say it's the way of everyone, because not everyone believes. But it is the way offered to everyone for Everyone, And he says it so simply, and what a great call to believe, a call to come. You know, it's, it's, it's this invitation. I know we don't do a whole lot around here, but here it is. Here's the invitation. Here it comes. Are you ready? 
Everyone, he says in verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That is, put to, to be dismayed or, or, or be, uh, at, the, at the last day, you will not find yourself wanting. You will not be judged at the last day based on your works. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. God doesn't have different eyes for how he views different people. No matter who you are, regardless of background, ethnicity, upbringing, socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter. Everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a promise and you can take it to the bank. So how do you live in this way of grace? How do you live every day like God exists? You start by rejecting the lies. Reject the lies of practical atheism that, that, that say the gospel is just not that simple. That say God's word is not sufficient for my life. The lie that says you have to do the impossible to succeed. Because friends, you don't. You see, you live in the way of grace when you treasure the simplicity and beauty of the gospel, what God has done for you. When you trust the sufficiency of God's word. You don't need any other system. You don't need any other word. This is it. And it's good. And when you look to the success of Christ and you accept it and take it as yours, knowing that He has done the impossible. At the end of the day, then and only then do you have a reason to live without shame and guilt over the past. To rest contently in the present and to have a great hope in the future. Why would you want to live any other way? Let's pray. Father, Jesus tells us to come, all who labor and are heavy laden, all we could even add are worrisome and burdened and and trying to work to earn acceptance by you and to earn your love. Jesus calls to us and says, I will give you rest. Lord, help us to live in the way of grace today. To reject the lies. And to remember who we are. To remember the simplicity of the gospel. The sufficiency of your word. And the success of Christ. You are good and good to us and we praise you and we love you in Jesus name we pray amen